Friends, our text this morning falls within the final hours of Jesus' earthly ministry. In this final day, he has spent the better part of the day with his disciples, preparing them for his departure. He's introduced to them the Lord's Supper, as we thought about last week, and will tell of their own impending defeat. Within a matter of hours, each of these disciples who have been with him for the past three years, each will fall away. The whole chapter here in Luke's gospel is taken up with this theme of betrayal and abandonment. And where the focus is often on the betrayal of Judas and the abandonment of his disciples. We're going to see this morning, the focus begins to shift on the father's own apparent abandonment of his own son. As Jesus Christ, this perfect God-man, the one who we heard from earlier in 2 Corinthians 5.21, the one who knew no sin would become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The focus is now becoming clear. The hour has come for Jesus to die in the place of sinners. But friends, with that context in mind, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, it's found on page 882 in the Pew Bibles provided. Let me encourage you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, to grab one of those, open it, and even take it home with you and begin to read and know God through it. This morning we're going to consider verses 31 through 46 as we begin to slow down and consider these final moments. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, records... Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter temptation. 
And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Every one of us fail. Every one of us falls short. Every one of us, like Peter, have at some point denied that we even knew Jesus. We face tremendous opposition from inside and from outside. And we often and regularly fall into temptations. But all of this failure that we find in this text reveals to us our desperate need for a sin-bearing, substitutionary atonement that Jesus accomplished on Calvary. I want to remind you that Luke is writing to Christians. He's not telling them anything they don't know about what Jesus has accomplished through Calvary. But through the example of these disciples and through Jesus' words, we are reminded of our failure and exhorted to cultivate an active and careful and prayerful walk with Jesus as we await his return. And I want us to think this morning about each of these points of failure and conclude by considering our desperate need of a sin-bearing substitute. So if you take notes this morning, there are really four points we're going to consider. First, three failures, and then a concluding remark about Jesus, the one who suffers in the place of sinners. We see in verses 31 through 34 that we fail We see also in verses 35 through 38 that we will face opposition. Jesus is preparing his disciples for that. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the disciples fall into temptation. They're sleepy for sorrow. So first this morning, look with me. Jesus has just shared the Passover with his disciples. He's preparing them for his departure They're all there together in the upper room. Now we don't know if this conversation necessarily took place there or on the road on their way to the Mount of Olives. But regardless, he calls Simon aside, Simon Peter. He says, Simon, Simon. This is like when Jesus said to Martha, Martha, Martha. Or verily, verily, or truly. He says, I'm about to say something really important. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you. We see a picture here of the the horror and the the seriousness of the enemy, the devil. 
or Satan as he's described. Now, if you look in your Bibles here at verse 31, you'll see he demanded to have you. That you is plural. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan demanded to have you all. He wanted every one of you. He demanded to sift you like wheat. Now, for you and I, we, we don't know what that might look like. It's, it's not like sifting flour, you know, just sort of gently shaking flour. Now, the idea here is to take a stalk of wheat in order to break the chaff from the grain, you have to violently shake it. The picture here is of vehemence control. He demanded to have you. He wanted you. We see the sense of Peter's own words later in his letter in 1 Peter that the enemy, Satan, is a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. Satan wanted to devour him. But notice here, the key to perseverance. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. They faced an impossible enemy, but they had someone who was interceding for them. It was Jesus. And when we fail, we need to be reminded that our intercessor has not stopped his work, but, but he's interceding for us. Though we fail, we have a substitute who is willing to stand in the stead of us. I prayed for you. That though he would fall short of the glory of God, and as we will learn next week, deny Jesus, just as Jesus predicted here. He will deny him three times. Deny what? That he even knew Jesus. I don't even know him. No, I, I've never, I don't know him. I've never met him before. But Peter would turn again because of the intercessory work of Christ. The language that is used here, and when you have turned again, is that, that idea of repentance. Stop living your way, Peter. Turn back and follow Christ. We see the duty here that is given to Peter. Strengthen your brothers. Isn't it so often the case in our life that when we fall and Christ picks us up, that we now have a new ministry to help those around us who are falling? We see by implication in this text that the Christian life is lived in community, not in isolation. That God has designed the, the local church to be filled with Christians who are living together in order to strengthen one another when they fail. This is the intercessory and mediating work of Christ through His people. But of course, Peter in pride responds, I would never do that. And friend, that may be you this morning. You might say, I would never deny Jesus. I would never fail. Brothers and sisters, let us be encouraged this morning that as Christians, we will fail. You maybe you failed this morning already. You fell short. You fell into sin. Brother, sister, see the restoration that is available to you through the work of Christ. We ought never to withhold the opportunity for a sinner to turn from their sin and to trust in Christ. 
when you turn, restore the brothers. We see not only do we fail, we also face difficulty. Jesus here has this interesting exchange with his disciples. Luke alone records this. And he reminds them of earlier ministry back in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Jesus sent out his disciples as missionaries and they went throughout the countryside. And he told them, hey, when you go, don't take anything with you. Just rely on your countrymen and they will give you everything you need. As you preach the gospel, rely on their benevolence and their care. And lo and behold, as they went out, people provided. But what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching his disciples that ministry isn't going to be safe. It is not going to be like chapter 10. But that ministry is going to be difficult. That Christians are going to live in a new era that is oppressive. And of course, as we read through the book of Acts, Luke's second volume here, we see the apostles face opposition at every corner. At every turn, they, they face difficulty. Nobody wanted to help them. All they wanted to do is imprison them. And so while Jesus is not literally calling them to arms, the gospel is not forwarded by coercion or by force. If you're interested in world religions, this is where you can see Christianity and Islam at polar opposites. That we do not, through the sword, vanquish sinners, but through the Spirit's work, bringing sinners to repentance and faith. And so if you look there at verse 38, when Jesus has instructed them to prepare to sell their clothes and to buy swords. They, they take it literally. They say, look, here's a couple swords. Let's, let's go fight. What has Jesus said? He says it's enough. A, 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 perhaps a better understanding is enough of that. Enough of that. Even as we'll see in next week's sermon, when, uh, when Peter grabs a sword and chops off one of the high priest's servants and Jesus heals him, he rebukes him. He says, no, 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 no. I have come to do the Father's will. You're, you're in the way. And this is the point that Jesus makes there in verse 37 when he says, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. That, that language must be means it is necessary it is required. I must be numbered with the transgressors. And brothers and sisters, it is a reminder to us this morning that if this world hated Jesus, then it's going to hate us. And we have grown so accustomed as American Christians, as Christians living here in America, to think that our culture is in love with Jesus, that we're accepted. And it's probably we've been accepted because we've watered the gospel down. We've changed the word of God. But brothers and sisters, if we are going to stand on the truth, we will face opposition at every turn. And so we face failure. We face difficulty. 
And lastly, we see we face temptation. We're told by Luke that they make their way out to the Mount of Olives. Of course, this will, because Jesus is following his custom, he's sort of being led into Judas's hands. Judas will know exactly where to find him. He doesn't mention the place as Gethsemane as the other gospel writers, but notice he uses language that points to it, verse 40, when he came to the place, right? Theophilus would have known the place. Oh, Gethsemane, that other garden, the one garden that undid what the other garden ruined. As Jesus comes, we find his disciples overcome by temptation. He exhorts them in verse 40 and in verse 46. In the other gospel accounts, he exhorted him three times. Luke just bookends this in order to point to the fact that what's really important in the middle. But before we get to that, I want, to note, I want you to notice Jesus here warning his disciples that temptation will come. That temptation is coming. And notice here in the text, what is the remedy to temptation? Verse 40. And when he came to that place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Of course, he had taught his disciples this. In the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. And then again in verse 46, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Brothers and sisters, prayer is the remedy in times of trouble. When we are in trouble, when we face temptation, our instinct, just as the doctor hits our knee and we reflex and our leg pops up. So we want to cultivate an instinct, a, a reaction that when we're in trouble, as the song says, we take it to the Lord in prayer. And prayer comes in various forms, and we see Jesus modeling prayer before us. Verse 41, and he withdrew from, that, from them about a, throw, a stone's throw away, just, just a little ways, enough where they could hear. And he knelt down and prayed. Here Jesus is in the midst of the hour of temptation, even himself facing difficulty and temptation. And he prays. And what does he pray? If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' prayer was a prayer for the will of God. And it was a prayer for a submissive heart. What we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is a the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ being sort of torn. Christ knows what he's about to suffer. Jesus knows the agony of Calvary. Not the pain of being hung on a Roman cross, but the pain of his father's wrath being poured out upon him. This is why he pleads in verse 42 that the cup of God's wrath would be removed from him. When we fall in temptation, we should pray. When should we pray? Not in the morning or the evening. We see the context makes clear that prayer is for times of difficulty and trial. This cannot be denied. 
The Lord has given us a means to communicate to our God in our greatest need. Now I want you to consider for a moment that God chose this means. He could have chosen another means. You know, we write it down on a piece of paper, give it to a bird, the bird flies it up to heaven or something of sorts like that. No. He gave us prayer as the means to communicate. He did not have to give us this grace, but it is a measure of his grace towards us as his people. Not the answer to prayer, but the means of prayer. You know, so often we tie answered prayer. No, friends, it's just the opportunity to pray, to speak to God, to complain, as the psalmist does in Psalm 22, my God, my God, why? Sometimes we just need to ask God why. What should we pray? What should we, what should we pray? Well, I think Jesus here is teaching us that we should pray the will of God. I mean, do you listen to your prayers? Do you listen to what you pray about? Brothers and sisters, this is not to diminish the need to pray for physical things. We should pray for physical things. Jesus clearly physically suffering. But what was more important? Paul tells us that that our bodies are wasting away but that our inner self is being renewed day by day. We should and we ought to pray for physical things. But but brothers and sisters, we ought to also pray for spiritual matters, like temptation, like areas where you struggle, maybe with anger, maybe with gossip, maybe with backbiting and bitterness, maybe with lust. Do you pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil? We ought to give more attention to our souls that are eternal than our physical bodies, which are temporary. More than that, we pray because God is sovereign. If God was not sovereign, why why pray? If God's not in control, if he cannot intervene and act? Oh, brothers and sisters, Let us depend upon the Lord in prayer because he can act. Brothers and sisters, you ought to cultivate in your life a regular time of prayer. Whether it be in the morning, the evening, the afternoon, whatever time, it ought to be a regular time where you commune with God, communicate with God, cry out to him, Lord, your will be done. It's as much a fight of faith as it is anything, brothers and sisters. You're wrestling with God like Jacob. Your will be done in my life. Yes, I'm suffering affliction. Yes, it's horrible and it's painful and I hate it. And the depression, the dark clouds won't leave. But your will be done, not my will. I face opposition and affliction. I keep stumbling. My face is all busted up because I can't stop falling into sin. Your will be done, not my will. My marriage isn't together. My kids, they're a hot mess. Your will be done, not my will be done. Brothers and sisters, we must, we must, it is necessary, lest we fall into temptation. 
a regular time of prayer. Jesus here illustrates the the great temptation that is before us. Notice with me there in verse 45. And he arose from prayer and he came to his disciples and he found them sleeping for sorrow. They were overwhelmed. It was an exhausting day. Emotionally, they had just went on the biggest roller coaster of their life and a ton of those little loop-de-loops throughout that. They've gone from Jesus feasting with them in the Passover to saying that one of you is a betrayer and will betray me into the hands of sinners. They've gone from the lows of that to the highs of the conversation. Hey, which one of us is the most awesome disciple? Who wins the popularity contest? Uh, hey, Jesus, can, can we sit at one at your right hand and one at your left hand when you come in power and glory? They face the temptation of pride, of bitterness, of doubt. And Jesus demonstrates here in the Garden of Gethsemane humans' greatest weakness and their need for Christ. What is temptation? I think John Owen provides one of the most helpful definitions in his work entitled Mortification. A temptation then, in general, is anything that, for any reason, exhorts a force or influence to seduce and draw the mind and heart of man from the obedience which God requires of him to any kind of sin. It's anything that draws you away from Christ. Anything that draws you away from Christ. We must understand that temptation comes in many forms. A very of of individual to individual. One might struggle with greed and another with lust. It, It varies. What is a pothole to one soul is a vast canyon to another comes in various forms. And it comes for no reason. Friend, have you found that an occasion in your life? All of a sudden you fall into some foolish temptation. You're like, I didn't see that coming. For any reason. Well, the enemy has no reason but to see you stumble and fall on your face. This is why the Apostle Paul says that they are common to men. They're ordinary. They're not strange. They're not different. Owen says that it exerts a force or influence. Brothers and sisters, we ought to see that here. From the Lord's words to to Peter, that the devil wants to shake you violently, we ought never to flirt with temptation. We ought not to mess with it. To flirt with temptation would be to flirt with fire. The saying is old, but... And tried, but but I think helpful. You mess with fire long enough, you will be burned. You mess with sin, you play with sin, you flirt around with it. Oh, it, you know, it, oh, I'm I, I'm I'm strong enough. I can watch those things. That doesn't bother me. Baloney. It will erode your soul. Oh, we must see the goal of temptation. It is not to merely take us for a stroll in the park, but to captivate our soul for eternity. Satan wants you. He desires to have you. Friend, he wants your mind. He wants to take you captive. He wants you back in his kingdom. 
We must not think again that temptation will always manifest nor bring about the same thing. What that means is that temptation brings about a variety of sins. We must not always expect it to come in the same form, but be ready for any attack. How do we flee temptation? I think Jesus here provides us to stay awake, to stay alert, and to depend on God in prayer. Friend, we've got to be awake, and we have to be on our knees in prayer. The Lord Jesus could not be any clearer for our need to be vigilant in watchfulness and prayer so that we, as his disciples, do not fall into temptation. This is why Owen would go on to write this. It is the great duty of all believers to use all diligence in the ways of Christ that he has appointed so as to not fall into temptation. My friend, I've just painted this picture of our failure and difficulty, our need for watchfulness, all the things that we fall short in, in order to demonstrate, I think, what Luke is driving home, and that is the need for Jesus. If you do not recognize your need from Jesus, then read over that text again. Satan, are you going to take Satan on, are you? All right, good luck with that. You're going to take on opposition a whole world against you? You will fall. Oh, you think you can get through the Garden of Gethsemane without falling asleep? You think you can stay awake? I know you. You're like me. Driving in the middle of the night, you know, slamming back those uh, little five-hour energy drinks, rolling down the window, turning up the, 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 the music, you know? Calling all your friends up at midnight. Hey man, will you just talk to me to keep me awake? I just need help. I'm struggling here. I keep falling asleep. And you can't stay awake. We are spiritually sleepy people. And that is why we need a Savior who stays awake. Every one of us fail. We face tremendous opposition and we fall into temptation. But all of this reveals to us our need for Jesus. I love what J.C. Ryle wrote as he thought about this passage. He says that this passage of Scripture, thinking of the garden here, we should always approach with special reverence. The event it records is one of the deepest things of God. While we read it, the words of Exodus should be upon our minds. Take off your sandals, for the place in which you are standing is holy ground. I just want for... A few moments to, in conclusion, to meditate on the agony of Christ in Gethsemane. We see the sorrow of Jesus over your sin. You see the sorrow of Jesus over your sin? The sorrow that Jesus faced in the garden was for sin, but not sin that, w- that was his own. As Paul wrote there in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he knew no sin. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane that, that the Father begins to pour out his wrath upon his Son. He can feel the Father becoming more and more distant. The Father cannot be around unholy things. The Father cannot. Jesus is going to be the substitute. He is going to bear the Father's judgment 
That eternal relationship that they had enjoyed for all of eternity is being fractured. It is being strained. He was facing the horror, not of his own sin, but of the the awfulness and sorrow of your sin. You know that gut-wrenching feeling when something horrible has been done to you or that you've done horrible? When your conscience just seems to break under the weight and pressure of your sin? Just imagine here in the garden, Jesus is bearing that horror of all the sins of those who would repent and trust in him. All the lies, all the lustful thoughts, all the deception, all the evil And your wicked heart was in view that night. See the sorrow. We see also Jesus' agony over God's wrath that your sin deserves. Look again at verse 42. We see the humanity of Christ. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. In the Old Testament, the, the cup that Jesus uses here was a reference to God's wrath. Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. God's wrath so overwhelming that one stumbles like a drunk man. Jesus on his knees crying out, Father, is there another way? Is there a plan B? Is there something that we've not thought about yet? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He submits willfully to his Father's plan. He will go to Calvary in a matter of hours. And there... The judgment of God will be poured out upon him. And he'll feel the anguish physically and spiritually. Brothers and sisters, do you see the sinfulness of sin that this passage shows us? Sin is not as great as you remember it. You know, we tend to look at our past with fondness. We think, oh man, those were the glory days. There was nothing glorious about Gethsemane. In fact, it was so overwhelming for Jesus' humanity that divine aid was rendered by an angel. The, The weight of your sin was so great that Jesus was sweating so profusely that it looked like he was bleeding from his capillaries, like they, that everything, he, he was going in a system meltdown. His, his humanity was being crushed under the weight of your sin. We ought to see the agony of our Savior and remember the agony was because I love sin more than I love the light. We ought to weep over our sin. We ought never to take joy in sin. But see the sorrow that it caused our Savior. 
Oh friend, the the agony of pain and the, the blood cries from the garden was for you. See the depth of his love for you. That he would face the agony of Gethsemane. Because you loved your sin. He loved you. Jesus knows the horror of sin. He knows the pain you feel for the sin. He knows what you feel when you fall short. He knows what it's like to be tempted. The Bible says he's he's been tempted in every way that we have, yet without sin. Jesus took not just one man's sin, but the sins of all those who would turn and trust in him. And he paid the sin debt in full. Does the Savior's life given for you cause your heart joy? Does it cause you to sing with with celebration? Dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power. Never. Till all the ransomed church of God. Oh, he has a people ransomed. From every tribe, tongue, and nation. People whose penalty has been paid in full. So that you would never sin again. May we worship and adore the Savior this morning. May we give ourselves today to think of the cross and the costliness of our salvation. Let the sufferings and agony of Calvary, of God's wrath, be an aversion to your sin. Let it be an avoidance to say, "I I don't want to cause. Let the screams of Christ... To his father, but it means to you and I to flee sin and to trust in him as our Savior, as our Lord. Let it be a reminder to us of what it cost the eternal Son of God. Every one of us fail. We will face opposition and we will fall into sin. But brothers and sisters, we have a Savior ready to save for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we pray that we might find our desperate need of you for your sin-bearing substitutionary work on Calvary. May we look to you, Christ, and to relish in the reality that you have paid all our sin debt. And therefore, we owe you our life. May we spend our life for you in your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.